Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 69 of the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodzik. This episode is with Dina Duncan, who is currently directing The 39 Steps at Whidbey Island Center for the Arts. I'm lucky enough to be part of her cast. I play clown number two, which means that I am playing 19 male roles, which has been one of the best acting experiences of my life. If you're around the Puget Sound area, I sincerely hope that you join us at Woodby Island Center for the Arts. The show runs through February 27th. You can get tickets at tickets.wickaonline.com. And this interview has a really special place in my heart because Dina was one of my very first theatrical mentors. She saw something in me and really encouraged it. Uh, and I am very grateful to her and I have a lot of love for her. So I really hope that you enjoy episode 69 with Dina Duncan. I'm here sitting in my dressing room, first first interview that's taking place in a dressing room, with the lovely, talented, dynamic Dina Duncan. Welcome to the podcast, Dina. Thank you, Katie. I'm thrilled to be here. And it's fun to be in the dressing room. I know, isn't it? It feels very appropriate. Yeah. Uh, so we've known each other for over eight years. Wow. That's a true story. And <laughs> we first met uh, working on The Good Doctor. I was assistant directing it and doing a lot of work on the props. And then the following year, I was still serving with AmeriCorps and... I spent part of my time in service here helping you with production management, and that is like getting on air, I think you know this, but I consider you to be one of my strongest mentors, just in terms of creating a theatrical career and um, seeing a strong woman empower, not taking shit from anyone and getting stuff done. So thank you for that, and let's unpack your entire theatrical life now. But I'm bummed. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you. I remember you coming in and sitting down to talk about the AmeriCorps um, internship as well, and immediately recognizing that sitting in front of me was a um, young female theater artist who is going to be in this art form for the rest of her life. I call them lifers <laughs> and you know it when you meet them. And I knew that immediately with you. So I felt right off the bat, we, we were going to work together really well. So my theatrical career, I didn't come to theater until my senior year in high school. Really? I didn't do any children's theater. I lived in the middle of nowhere, Elko, Nevada. There was no theater. I didn't go see plays. I didn't read plays. And my high school English teacher gave us an assignment. We either needed to audition for the debate team or audition for a play. And I thought, well, auditioning for the play sounds easier. <laughs> I didn't have to prep anything. You could just go read. And like that. So it was pure laziness. It was pure decision. laziness, yes, that brought me to, you know, my calling. And I auditioned for The Rainmaker, and I was cast as Lizzie, the lead. And I had never been in a play before, a senior in high school. That's a really challenging role, right? Unbelievable. And wait, I, I was super geeky and was a total tomboy and hadn't dated and had never kissed. I've never told this story. I can't believe I'm telling this. My first real kiss was on stage as Lizzie. And, and I, I would almost lose my mind because I was so excited about kissing every night. <laughs> um, but that, that was it. I did two plays that senior year. 
I had already picked my college. I was going to go get a degree and be a school teacher. I was going to go to the University of Utah. I had my whole life, like, figured out, you know. And then right at the end of my senior year, I said, I, I want to study theater. And I went to a couple auditions. I auditioned for the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and I got in. I dropped out of the University of Utah. My parents freaked out a little right. bit. Um, right. I mean, they loved me, but they were pretty scared for me. But they drove me to L.A., and they dropped me off. I went from Elko, Nevada, the middle of Cowtown, America, to Los Angeles. It was, it was an unbelievable um, experience. I didn't make it into the second year, which was the first time I realized wow. how difficult theater can be and how we have to protect ourselves from all the no's and all the negativity because I thought, okay, I'm done, right? I did one year at the American Academy. I don't have any talent. I'll never finish. Um, sort of took a year off, went back to undergrad school in theater, got my degree, and just kept on going. I was in Nevada in Reno and worked at Reno Little Theater. Um, do you want me to keep going? Like up to yeah, now? I love this. I think okay. this is. I think this is great. I mean, I guess if we're pausing for a second here, I know that gr- personally for me, growing up in the Midwest, that was a narrative that we were told a lot as young women who were interested in theater. Okay, you can be in plays in college, but make sure you get a teaching degree so you have something practical. Were you feeling that as well? All the time, right? All the time, and not just from my parents, from friends. And do you think that young men? get that put upon them as much when they're have when they have an emerging interest in theater in high school i no i don't think so i don't know though right yeah although i mean full circle on that i have a son who went zachary who went off to school for math and science realized he loved theater so much and has now come full circle and is back at cornish and even for me obviously i love it but when he switched from his science degree and went to theater, I had to take a deep breath and say, okay, this is what makes him happy. This is what makes his, his heart sing, and I believe in it. But it can, it can, it's intimidating for parents. Um, it's a hard calling. But it also reminds me we don't do it unless it's the only thing that makes us happy. I remember having my, my advisor in college, Jeff Dintiman. He said if there's any, and he would say it to majors all the time, if there's anything else you can do. Go do it. If there's anything <laughs> else you can do, do that instead. Yeah. And being in college being like, you don't know anything, man. Like, what <laughs> bullshit? That's stupid advice. But it's it's true. I mean, whether you're doing it as a vocation or as an avocation, it's, it's there's so many challenges all the time. But... We're lifers. So, yeah, we're lifers. So we we're keep lifers, at it. So we keep going. So I got my undergraduate degree at the University of Nevada, Reno, did a lot of theater, was able to sort of reestablish my um, faith in myself. And Are you directing at this courage. time or just acting? Not directing. Okay. I didn't direct till really late, like 10 years ago, 12 years ago. I didn't know that. Nope. nope. But I'll tell you about that because okay. I had a great teacher for my directing. Um, then I went back to L.A., I went to the Stella Adler Conservatory to really get some classical training, and I was so lucky. I was in Stella Adler's last master class with her, personally, her last 30 students in L.A. It was stunning. It was absolutely stunning. She was harder than shit. I, she, she still has given me my favorite note from anybody I've ever worked with. She said to me one day, she said, Dina, you are too good to be this bad. <laughs> I was like, ah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So take take us through what, okay, 
So were classes for a day long? Like, would it be a day of class or would it be half day? Like, what was the structure? Yeah. Stella, we were with her for three months, and it was four or five days a week for about five or six hours. Take us through a typical day with Um, Stella Adler. You start in lecture. So she would sit on stage and lecture about everything from etiquette to how to memorize lines um, to what it means to play some of the great roles to how to walk, how to use your hands, how to use a fan. And she would lecture and lecture and lecture. Um, and then she'd put us through scene work. There was, there was always scene work every day, which had been assigned. Um, we were often sent home if we weren't prepared properly. Um, so she suffered no fools. None. I remember doing a scene from a Long Day's Journey and getting sent home and just being in tears. I was like, let me stay in class, let me stay in class. And she said, you're not ready. Go home. Go home. Wow. Yeah. So a lot of my... Um, technique and all of my admiration for the art form, I think, comes from Stella. Comes from my years with Stella, because she meant it, right? It. I hate it when people say, "Oh, this is a hobby." I don't think theater is a hobby. It makes it makes my blood boil. It's a it's a lifestyle. Whether or not you're getting paid for it, if you think about like when I th- when I look at a typical year, I'm lucky enough to usually be acting in two to three shows and directing one show, and for each of those shows is hundreds of hours of volunteering, right? Or at least the accumulation of an entire year's worth of rehearsals, hundreds of hours. That's not, you don't do a hobby for hundreds of hours. No. That's, it's more, it's more than that. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, we know it takes about 120 hours in rehearsal to put up a play, not a musical. That's what we just did with 39 Steps. Right. We'll get to that. But yeah. Um, So I did that. And then... I got married and had children, and I took about seven or eight years out, and I was going crazy. I was missing it. I was right. a stay-at-home mom. I'm really lucky for a, a woman of my generation to be able to stay home, and I'm really glad I did that. But I did lose part of my identity. So um, coming back to theater, I was looking for a home. I was looking for a theater that I felt I could do years and years and years at. Really shopped around, and we were living in Woodenville at the time and came over to the island Wicca was open, but they weren't doing theater yet, and I just, I knew it. I just could feel it. I said, we're going to buy property. This place is going to pop. I'm going to be able to help run a theater. We're going to do it. And it happened. It was just pure flipping luck. Grace. It was grace. And for some of our listeners who might not know what the acronym (coughs) means, we're not talking about the pagan religion, (laughs) although I have a lot of respect for that, and that's sometimes people find that similarity humorous but it's uh wicca stands for Woodby island center for the arts great but how do you how do you come here how do you do you pitch yourself do you apply for a job waha i literally walked in and asked if i could help if i could do something and i was offered to help with nutcracker uh wicca was producing nutcracker at the time and they needed more house managers. So I house managed for one show for like three or four weeks. And then I started volunteering steadily for about a year in everything from helping the tech director to helping the janitorial to helping accounting. I just, I knew I wanted to be here and I wanted them to know who I was. And then when they started a theater program and they were hiring, I was able to apply and was lucky enough to be hired. But I think it's because I'd put in a year they already knew who I was. So um, I've had 15 seasons here. 
I think we're congratulations. On... Thank you. Thank right? you. Thank you. <laughs> um. <laughs> inside joke. A vi- so, dear listeners, that was a visual inside joke from the play that makes no sense to you. But <laughs> thank you for suffering my hand gestures as uh, that you cannot see, um, as as is often the case. Please continue. Is often the case. Um, so, within those fifteen years, I've continued to study and. Actually, I think it's been about 12 years ago, Bart Schur, who was the artistic director at Intamon, was teaching at Freehold Studio in Seattle, and he offered two directing workshops. He took eight directors under his wing, and I was lucky enough to be in the second session, and we worked with him for um, almost a year, actually, and we were able to sit in, oh, wow. on, we were able to sit in on rehearsals at Intamon for shows that he was directing, and we were being led by him and directing scenes with Seattle actors at Freehold. So all of my directorial real training came from BART. I have all these years of other experience, certainly in the art form and being directed and having um, tried directing, but any, any skill set or technique is, is BART's and what I got through Freehold. And I feel really strongly about um, the quality of that work. He is so adamant about playwright intent, and I know mm. that I know that my desire to not cut lines, to not change words, to honor what the playwright is trying to say, um, that all comes from Bart. So that's pretty cool. And then my latest training, I just got back in December. I went. I was lucky enough to get into a workshop with Anne Bogart and playwright Charles Mee at the CD uh, company in New York. Incredible. Yeah, I just spent four days with them. Scared the shit out of myself. It was. It's all generative work, which is new to me. I'm very excited about it. Um, but I will forever train. I mean, this is an art form that we have to train. Well, I don't think that that. I don't think that every theater artist shares that philosophy. Why is that? I agree with you. Why is that so important to you? Is there a moment where you were like, "This is this is lifelong work, studying as well as participating in this art form." Well, I was taught that by Stella. That's something she truly believed in because our type changes. But more importantly, she believed that we change, our thoughts change, our political viewpoints, how we feel about the universe, how we feel, how we love the, our losses, all of that informs us as humans and our humanity. And we have to train in order to share our humanity. Honestly, we can't, I can't do the same things I did when I was 20. It's not going to work. Um, so I think I got it from her. And then the more I train, the more I realize I need it. And I think we have to have right. we, we have to have equal amounts of time in process, in performance, and in education. So you said there are two paths I want to go down, and you tell me which where we're going first. I want to dig into type because I think that's evolving and changing, and I think you're casting of me over the years is a good example of that. But then I also, and I know sometimes maybe this is an exasperating topic for women in theater, but one of the things I respect about you so much is you really seem to find that balance of being a kick-ass mom and having to incredibly kind, intelligent, and articulate young men that you raised, but then also continuing to push yourself professionally and, and really finding your voice as a theater artist. Um, I don't think everyone does that successfully. So where do you want to go first, Dita Duncan? Mm -hmm. I like the type, but I I will answer one thing to the balance. Sure. 
because I was really lucky in the fact that I had a conversation with my boys when they were just young teenagers about the fact that I was going to be out of the home a lot, that I loved theater, that I was going to direct, I was going to act, I didn't want to stop. Right. And would they be disappointed? And it was something my son said to me. Nicholas said to me, we want you to be happy. And I knew that it would be better for me to do theater, even if it meant some time away from them, that I would be a better mom, I'd be a better woman, I, I'd be a better wife, I'd, I'd be happier. I was lucky enough to be able to do both, but it was a choice, and I think that I did sacrifice hours with my children, but I, oh, this is going to sound horrible, I don't regret it, I don't regret it. Um, Nor should you. Yeah. But I think I, I think it's important for not only women but men too to hear hear stories like that, so they understand the logic behind it and how like your kids totally bought into it, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And how instead of making it like you you took their input into like that's amazing. I love that you had a conversation with them and. I don't want to dig too much more deeply into the how does she have it all kind of thing, but I thank you for uh, going there briefly. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about type because I think it's we're at a really interesting point in contemporary theater when it comes to casting. When we're having and film, we're having more transgender roles, and what does that what does that mean? Are we casting trans actors? Are we casting cisgendered actors? And that's just one example, but also when we talk about Hamilton, right? Like, is type... I hope that I hope that the idea of type is evolving, and I think it is. But a lot of traditional acting training, you learn your type, you know your type. Type is type is type, and that is a rigid kind of thing. And so I want to talk... I want to talk about two times, because this has happened twice, where you have cast me... In male roles, mm-hmm. and what was your process behind that, behind making those decisions? So the first one is Sweeney Todd, right? We're talking mm-hmm. about seven years ago? Yep. Cast you as Pirelli, and cast you just now as a clown in 39 Steps. Both times were for the same exact reason. I cast because you were the best actor to audition for the role. I went with talent. I was lucky enough in both those instances, but it's weird that I had to call the publisher, but I do just make sure that it's okay. And I think that that's really odd. Um, There are some scripts that come that say you can't change roles, you can't change genders, and I don't know if that's between playwright and publisher or who that's with. Um, But for me, I don't think I was thinking about doing anything avant-garde or anything different. For me, I was just trying, both times, I'm just trying to cast the best show I can. Let's go back to Sweeney Todd, though, because I remember you calling or emailing me and saying, would you be willing Mm -hmm. to audition for that part? So what was that moment in terms of going through the general auditions, prepping for giving actors their sides for a callback? I mean, was there a spark of inspiration? What was that? How did you get that idea in the first place? It was your talent in the room, right? It's hearing you read. It's hearing you sing. It's it's laying out the sides. It's laying out the casting, looking at the strength of everybody in the room, looking at other Pirellis that I was looking at, knowing that I had a stronger contender with you and saying, oh, I can read this actor 
I can read Katie Woodzik for three different roles. So let's do that. I didn't know how you would take it though. I didn't know if that would be offensive. I didn't. I had and no idea. And actually, remembering, I was a little. I was a little. Ta- I wasn't offended. I was a little taken aback. I was like, what? And I think it's that actor ego thing. Like, am I not? Am I not young and pretty enough to be Joanna? Am I not like? Like, am I, I know I'm just, like, a little too young for Mrs. Levitt, but really, if you did the math, I think it would work out, you know, but I want to be in a Sondheim piece, so of course you say yes. But that was all, like, that was the thought process that happened before yes. Yeah. And looking back on it, I wish, and I think, I mean, I don't think I had, I didn't necessarily have, like, a reliable source of internet at that time, but I wish I would have done what I did for this show, which was do drag king makeup tutorials and sort of make it, and we were in a bigger space for that show, and so I think it was kind of okay that it was just like a a mustache and Uh a mustache that was drawn on with eyeliner and ace wrap around my chest, and I have since learned from (laughs) that. But I mean, easily one of the most exciting moments of my career to have people look back on that show and say, you weren't in that show. Yes, I was. You might not have recognized me, but I was in that show. But I just hope that more more directors do this, I guess. Because, especially since I know that we've been talking um, now this morning, there's a, another another article about That's What She Said in American Theater, right. uh, which I know some of, some of the listeners have listened to episode 62 with Aaron Pike and Hatlow, but if you haven't, a quick recap. Um, over the past two years, they've been piecing together this show that's built from the dialogue in the most commonly produced plays in 19... We're in a dressing room, folks. It's a theater. Doors open and close. Deal with it. You're excited about the soundscape, right? All right. Stage directions and lines from female characters in the most commonly produced plays, 2014 to 2015. They put it up for a four-night run in a 50-seat space in Capitol Hill, and they have received since opening four season desist letters from both Samuel French and dramatist play service. And the whole reason that this experiment happened was that Aaron, who performed the piece, was frustrated at how female characters were characterized. That did that make sense? That sort of did. Or the limited sometimes limiting, especially when you make it into a collage like that piece, um, a lot of apologizing, a lot of questions, a lot of crying. Um, Other Desert Cities was on that list. Other Desert Cities and 4,000 Miles. Um, I don't know what, where am I going with this? I'm not a very linear thinker, but I'm just glad we're examining. I'm glad that I'm grateful for Aaron's work in examining that. And I'm grateful for you and having an open-mindedness about your direction to be like, okay, well, there's only one female part in this show and I have the actor for this, but I have another actor I really want to use. Let's, see if this works and call the publisher and make it happen. Like, how cool is that? And, like, right now with 39 Steps, I was in New York in December and went to see 39 Steps and met one of the producers. And he asked me how it was going, and I said we were just getting ready to start rehearsals, and I was excited because we had a female clown. And he he looked at me really strangely, and he said, Can you do that? (laughs) Well, yes, actually... We can do that. Everybody can do this. But I think it's, and I think it's, I think it's because directors like yourself, and then also theater artists like Aaron and Courtney and Hatlow, are question. And I think 
it's sort of the up and coming, you know, the generation that's coming into their power right now is theater right. artists um, questioning, like, do we need to even fucking have type anymore? Like, I kind of feel like we're in this really exciting time of almost revolution in terms of casting and how theater is being made. And I just hope that it, it continues. I would love to see that conversation include playwrights because I think it'd yes. be really exciting to talk about playwright intent and story and how how much does it matter if it's cast to type? I, I don't know. I don't think I don't think it does. Um, I think that would be a really great conversation. Let's keep talking, people. Yeah, get playwrights let's, in on let's this. Just, let's just talk a lot about 39 Steps now. I, I really <laughs> want to. So we're recording this in the dressing room uh, hours before opening opening Ooh. night. Um, we had a really great final dress last mm-hmm. night. Everything feels really tight and solid. And I guess let's start first with how did you decide to direct this piece? Well, the first time I heard about this play was you. <laughs> you told me about it. Katie Woods. Like, seven or eight years ago, I think. Yeah. I, I had so. never heard of it. And then my son did it at college, and so I read it. And then our executive director here at Wicca, Stacey Bergois, um, read it, saw it at the rep in Seattle, and said, we need to do it. And she put it on the calendar, but we didn't have a director attached to it. And I know that I want to direct more, and th- threw my name in, and she gave it to me, which was like, it, it was terrifying because I was like, oh man, okay, shit. <laughs> now I've got to figure it out. It's not like anything I've ever worked on before. It is not an easy play. It's No, it looks easy. I mean, it actually, it sounds, I'm like, oh, a couple of trunks and a couple of moving pieces. We're going to be golden. You know, it's, it's crazy. Physical comedy at its highest. So, okay. You're deciding you're directing it. What is your process? Once, once you know that you have, you're attached to a process project what so process starts there what is that like for you well are you taking I know you do a lot of research you're taking notes you're I do I do a ton of research but this play was different than anything else I'd worked on because the premise is so madcap the premise if you know the movie or that's the first thing I did was watch the movie and read the book movies movie's not that good movie's not that good it's sorry like, Hitchcock Hitchcock's first is it his first film it's it's within the first five films yeah. he ever directed yeah and he even talks about the fact that he was trying to figure out what type of film it was even as he was filming it he couldn't, <laughs> oh, man. Quite, he couldn't quite figure out right. if it was comedic or a thriller right. or madcap um but watching it and realizing that what Patrick Barlow our playwright did our our, our adapter did was take all of the characters from the movie all of them and put them in the play with four actors. So you have one male actor who's playing one role, you have one female who's playing three, and then you have these two actors who are cast as clowns playing everything else, you know, 50 plus roles. It's it's a crazy premise. And it's not just changing hats, although we do that a lot. <laughs> it's, it's I know we do. It's changing body type, how you walk, how you talk. I still fully expected actors to create background for every one of those, even if it was only one or two lines. It was the only way it could be fully realized. So the amount of work for the actor had to be intense, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. What? The guest is asking me a question? That never (laughs) happens. Uh, Yeah, it is. I sort of... um, It was interesting for me because I... um, I don't know if you remember this, but we were at our good friend Matthew Gregory's wedding... And we're having cocktails on the porch of Wicca. And I was talking about auditioning for Adam's family and saying, like, oh, it'd be funny, like, 
Pirelli and Gomez are kind of the same guy. Like that, that would be funny if I, because again, I feel, again, it's this type thing, right? Where I feel like I'm 30 and I feel like I'm a little too old for the ingenue and not quite old enough for the mothers. And so where does that leave you? You know, because I love musical theater above all else. Um, and so, and you, your eyes lit up and you're like, you know, you know, you know, the two clowns wouldn't have to both be guys. Like you yeah. had the weird, the that was, that was actually the first thought. It was the moment. And, uh, yeah. And it was a really fun callback. And I, I remember getting home and by the time I had pulled into my driveway, there was already a voicemail offering Offering me the role, which is the fastest I think that's ever happened for me personally. Directors know it. We all know it. When you see it, when it's in the room, there's no question. I knew, I knew within just a couple of minutes of you being in the callback that I was going to cast you. In fact, I knew I was going to cast you so much that the other casting revol- <laughs> revolved around that. That was how strong that callback was. Yay! Yeah, yeah. And one of my, I know, I, I'm not skirting your question. I promise, but. Um, it's been a really rewarding experience to work with Kent Youngie as the other clown. I remember one time, and I think it was maybe Wicca, an anniversary or whatever, um, some sort of theater series event at Wicca, and you brought Kent up on the stage. Mm-hmm. And you had people come onto stage if they'd ever worked in a show with Kent. And 99.9% of the people in the audience mm-hmm. all came on stage. And... Kent, he's in his 60s, yeah. right? Yeah. He's just... He's amazing. We call it the seven degrees of Kent Jungi. Yeah. And it was sort of a joke, but we we were surprised at how big that sort of game rippled out. And what we did, we put him in center stage and we said, if you've been in a play with Kent Jungi, please come on stage. And that was almost everybody. And then if you've been in a play with somebody who's been in a play with him, stand up. And it was everybody. There was nobody left. Right. Yeah. So that's how important he is in the theater world out here and that's one of yeah i it's I, I think so much of the experience has been not only your direction but working with him so closely and sort of it's made me step my game up because he is so committed his commit i don't think i've ever met an actor that's more committed to the process to the rehearsals to building character than he is and so then i can't really phone it in right uh-huh. like i have to because those two roles are so interconnected, I have to be going all in if he's going all yeah. in. And then it becomes one, one yep. upsmanship. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think... And when we talk about clowns, I know we had, we had Evelyn DeHay come out and lead an amazing clowning workshop. Uh, and clowns, clowns being the worst and best of us as humans. And so I feel like it's been kind of a collaboration with Kent and I building those clowns together. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also the sort of the backstory within the clowns themselves, I sort of think of, you know, Mammoth's a life in the theater, mm-hmm. right? Like we have this older seasoned clown and the younger upstart clown. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I have nothing, I have nothing but fondness and uh, love and, and, respect for Kent and working with him through this process. Does that answer your question? It does. Well, the ensemble is so strong. This ensemble, the four of you. We have Tristan Steele in the role of Hannay. That's just a secret agent name to begin with. Tristan Tristan Steele. Steele. Doesn't that sound like a secret agent? Tristan Steele, who went to Yale. 
Tristan. We love you, Tristan. <laughs> and then Bristol Branson returning to our stage after I don't know how many years off, who's just... Steel Magnolias was the last thing here, yeah. so that's what, three, four years ago? Five. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's amazing. I knew that I wanted really strong theater practitioners in the room, and for the first time ever, I really wanted directors in the cast. And sometimes as directors, we're like, well, we don't want anyone else directing in the room. Right. But I knew I needed you guys because this genre is new to me, and it was really difficult. And I needed – it didn't matter to me where the good ideas were coming from as long as we had good ideas. Like, they didn't have to be from me. So I needed really great minds in the room, and that's what I got. I think that's an act of bravery, like, and I want to com- I want to say that, and I want to commend you for that, because we all know directors who <laughs> just don't, they can't handle that, and they, they, I think it's an insecurity within themselves that they don't, they don't want to be questioned, they don't feel a confidence in their, the strength of their vision and then their voice, because uh, it's a pretty fucking vulnerable thing to do, right? Like, yeah. I'm not only going to choose to have directors in my show, but I'm going to encourage them. Actively encourage them. To speak up and, and shape the vision of the show. Yeah. Yeah. It was challenging, um, but I, I, we couldn't have done it any other way, I don't think. Yeah. Let's talk about... I want to talk about Bristol, because I am learning a lot from her and her process. Another, another actor who's very committed and... Her forte is so is such the physical comedy, and I think she'll say that. And I don't. It comes with it. I mean, it's on par with Melissa McCarthy. It's on par with Buster Keaton. Those those people who just naturally have such an awareness of their body that they can take off a stocking or just the simplest thing is absolutely hilarious she can she is so precise in her movement she can move her foot cross her leg move her hand tilt her head and you get complete intent you get humor when she wants you to and you and you and you get really quiet and lean in to watch when she wants you to that's how precise she is i think it's the, i think that's i think it's control like i admire her control that she has as an actor cuz i know i I feel like I have a lot of power as an actor, but sometimes I get, I don't, I, I lose being grounded and I, I lose that control, right? And so I, I, I think that's what I'm learning. I've been really enjoying watching her and learning, learning about, it's not even less is more, that's not right, but having such control over the physical, um, just adding that other layer that makes the audience come to you more. Well, she's so grounded in her body. Right. And she just, she takes the stage. And, yeah. And she's, I mean, her her transformation between the three women is worth the price of admission alone. Yep. I'll say that. Yep. I, w- I would agree. Um, she's stunning. She's stunning in the role. And the, but the, so are the two clowns when you guys go through all your transformations. <laughs> and Tristan had his best night ever last night, and it's just going to grow and grow and grow. It, it, this, the New York Times, when this play first um, hit New York 10 or 11 years ago, said that, that 39 Steps is a valentine to American theater. Um, not American, to theater. And I really, really believe that. It's an actor's piece. And if you love the process, you're going to love this show because we don't hide anything. The magic is really right out there for you to see in a way that in today's the- theatrical world, we hide it. I, let, I mean, can we dig into the, the staying power of the show? Because I think it's a, 
It's incredible. It's like Phantom or Cats or the Fantastics, right? Where it's a show that just goes, has such a life beyond that opening production. They're re, re, remounting it on Broadway for 2017, right? They want to. Yep. And That's, it's, yeah. I mean, what I know for me, mystery, uh, I think I've spoken to this before, but my dad would read me Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. He would read me Sherlock Holmes. I remember the Alfred Hitchcock's presents with the woman who kills her husband with the frozen leg of lamb and then <laughs> serves it to the detectives for dinner. Wow. You know, mysteries were definitely a big part of, or I mean, on a sillier level, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Yep. I was so obsessed with that show in second grade that I made my teacher, Elsie Wilson, have a monthly geography lesson <laughs> in the form of that TV show. Excellent. And I see, I mean, with my work at Hedgework, I see how pe- people go, people are rabid, enthusiastic fans about mystery. Elizabeth George, Deborah Harkness. What is it about this genre that people are so connected to it? I was lucky enough to go to the International Mystery Writers Festival in Owensboro, Kentucky. Really? Yeah, I got oh, to be an actor. Right, 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 right. So we would get to read all of these um, Edgar-nominated mysteries um, before they hit the national market, and there are people who travel all over the world to come to these mystery festivals. And I think the reason we love them, I think, is because we get to we get to play act being whatever role we want to be. If we think we're a detective, we carry along in that story. If we think we're the, the damsel in distress or we're the, the really smart spy. Um, I, I think it's fun and intriguing and intelligent. I think mysteries are really intelligent and they're different. Well, it's just a different drama comedy mystery. It's its own, it's its own genre, but it's a new one for me too. I haven't done a ton of mystery, but now I love it. Yeah. It's, I think people, I think whether or not, Dear listeners, whether or not you're a fan of mysteries or theater or comedy, I really, I mean, we say this a lot, but it's a show in which there's something for everyone. And let's, uh, let's talk about some of our influences for this. Cause it's not, and I love, I love this about what I love this about your process is that, um, you not only allowed, but encourage anachronisms, mm-hmm. right? And so we're pulling from a lot, not only classic Hitchcock written into the script. There are nods to rear window, north by north, northwest, psycho, psycho, a little bit of vertigo. Um, did you say, oh no, the birds we added, the birds, the birds we added. Actually. Right. And that's so you can see that. I think that's another fun thing for mystery buffs is it is a bit of a, Mystery buffs and comedy buffs, it is a little bit of a theatrical scavenger hunt mm-hmm. while you're experiencing the show. But I, I mean, the very beginning, the very beginning, when the lights are coming down, we're hearing the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock BBC music, yes, which then transa- transitions into the iconic 007 yep. music. And I get chills every time. There, it's like we're a part of a spy story. Yeah. We all get to go on this ride, and we're taking the audience with us. Yeah, and that choice, that literally that Sherlock into 007 choice came from you in a rehearsal because you said, I feel <laughs> like spy versus spy. And we started talking about who are our favorite spies, and we were coming up with Sherlock and 007. And for me, the lead character in 39 Steps becomes sort of a 007, a secret agent man by the end. Thrust upon him. Yes, it's thrust upon him. And 
I, I think it's great that we get to play around with all that, and we're lucky enough. But we have, you know, we were looking at Monty should we ta- Python. Should we talk through some of the, let's talk through some of these other influences. <laughs> there's, there's lots of Monty, Monty Python. Python. I think just... I, I think without even adding anything to the script, there's definitely that feeling to it in terms of the way, how fast-paced it is, and um, how characters interact with each other within scenes. Well, and I was lucky in that the the fact that all the actors love Monty Python and you all knew and you all knew stuff you knew more than I do. It's like let's try this, let's try that, and then it was hilarious. So of course we kept it. So that was good. We have what? What else do we have? A Mad Magazine because we're talking about Spy versus Spy. Mrs. Doubtfire <laughs> in a character if you can find it. My favorite thing that's hidden in the show that I did sort of just for me is a little nod to Inception. But we'll see if anybody finds that. Yes, dear listeners. When you not if you come to the show. If you're listening to this and you live on Whidbey Island or in Seattle, the expectation is that you will be coming to the show. Yes. It's just so much oh Wayne's we have a little bit of Wayne's World in there. Have to have SNL, Carol Burnett, uh lots lots of different James Bond. Uh, Pink a little Panther. bit of Agatha Christie, yes, yeah, with the mousetrap and Pink Panther. It's fun. It's really fun. And, but wait, you know what? What? <laughs> the playwright was really adamant in, in the front of the script, and we paid attention to it. That even with all the madcap uh, fun that we're in, that he didn't want us to forget that there's actually a really strong story. And I actually think there's two really strong story points. Um, one is a simple love story which is lovely, and the other uh, is a political message that we need to be really careful with our world leaders, and it's a really interesting time in America to, to be pulling 39 steps to a political conversation, but it's there. When he talks, yeah, when Hene talks about elections, mm-hmm. uh, I also get a shiver because, I mean, yeah, He right talks now, about, is this the world you want to live on? Who live in? Who you vote for matters. And you need to be careful who you vote for because what world do you want to live in? That's a pretty important message. Indeed. We won't get too political here, uh-huh. but indeed it is an <laughs> important message. Uh, so we want to make sure that folks know how to get tickets. The, t- the show runs uh, through February 27th. Uh, you can go to tickets.wikaonline.com. To get tickets, but then also I'll have the box office information. You can always call. There are some walk-ups available each night, but I have a feeling that the show is going to become pretty popular. So there may not be walk-up tickets. And be a good theater patron and get your tickets ahead of time anyway. Will you? Please? Please. 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 Please? Okay. Yeah, you can't miss it. It's a, you know, it's a homage and a spoof to Alfred Hitchcock, and it's a great deal of fun for fantastic actors. Oh, and double that backstage. There's eight people combined in the crew to take care of those four actors playing their, you know, 60-plus roles. And there's fog and gunshots and sheep. There's lots of and sheep. And blood. And blood. There's a little bit of blood. Yeah. Everything you could ever want. If you love mystery. Experience. If you love mystery. If you're coming love up the mystery weekend, you should see a mystery while you're here. Anyway, as our time comes to a close, I want to ask you what advice you have for theater artists. What you're someone who, again, I have so much respect for with the training and all the different hats that you wear. 
when there's the Dina Duncan school of acting, mm. you know, su- succeeding, uh, succeeding, I'm not using the right word, but following in Stella Adler's footsteps, Ooh. what's on the curriculum for that school of acting, school of theater artistry? Self-care. There is nothing more important once you have the technique and you're continuing to work than to take care of yourself and to not wait. That's what I would tell everybody. Do theater now. Do it everywhere. Do it site-specific. It doesn't matter if you have a theater. It doesn't matter if you have the best lighting or the best sound or the best tech. It doesn't matter. Do theater. Read plays. Meet playwrights. Do it, do it, do it. If this art form is going to stay alive, we have to be out there in society talking, being heard, and being seen. I can think of no better note to end this interview on. This has been wonderful. It's always a pleasure to sit down and talk to you, whether or not there's a recording device involved. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.